I just went live. Yes. Yeah, I'm live right now. There you are. Cool. Awesome. Thank you, Cody. Appreciate you. Okay, bye. Hey, welcome to Crosspoint Fellowship Online. Uh, if you're here early, uh, you may be the only person on. Looks like there's one person on right now. Um, just stay tuned. About 10 minutes is when uh, seven minutes or so we'll start. Glad you're here. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. 
People were texting me about this music. This is good music, and I just found it this morning. So I'm picking up my virtual game with um, adding some good hillbilly worship. I don't know. I like it. It's good. Okay, the name of the band. David Potter. All creatures of our God and King. Man of Sorrows, Glorious King is the name of the album anymore. It's good. Worship you have uh, joined us this morning online uh, you are if you are trying to get to crosspoint fellowships virtual message that's where you are so um, thanks for joining us I'm going to begin our morning in prayer and then we're going to have our Lent reading and um, we'll go from there um, let's pray Lord, in these next few minutes, we pray that you will be enjoyed by people that are displaced, that are in a, uh, a, a strange season that you anticipated, uh, that you are not caught off guard by. Uh, we're thankful that you are um, with us, even if, even if we're meeting in different places and in different homes. Uh, Lord, we're thankful that you are very much with us. We're two or more gathered in your name. And that this morning, a, a people are gathered uh, who are dining on a shared uh, meal. Lord, we're thankful that you have provided this medium for us. I'm thankful for the, the technology and the folks that have been able to help us uh, get tuned into this and figure out how to use it. Lord, we just pray in these, in these next few minutes that, uh, that you will unite us as one, that we will dine on a shared, uh, as we dine on a shared meal, uh, that we will dine together and celebrate a shared Lord, uh, his work, his, um, 
terrible price that was paid, his resurrection, his victory over death that we all share in. Lord, we, um, we do want to pray for a people group this morning. We want to pray for the Hui people of China uh, who are Sunni, Sunni uh, Muslims, 13.8 million people, 0.01% of which are Christians. Lord, we are thankful that we can pray uh, this morning in, in our homes and in our, our dens and even displaced that we can lift up a hearty prayer uh, for a people group, an entire people group of almost 14 million people. Lord, we pray for the Hui people that you would draw them to you, that you would uh, send workers to the far corners of the field who are not okay with being here anymore, uh, that will go with the good seed of the kingdom, with the message of hope and uh, good news in Christ crucified and risen, Lord, that you will couple that with a people who are searching for answers uh, Sunni Muslims who are uh, who have already rejected probably what most folks um, how most folks worship in China uh, that they would even get, reject that even further and turn to faith in Christ. Lord, we uh, just pray for this massive prayer for a massive people group, knowing that you are are especially capable. Uh, we acknowledge that, we celebrate that, and we ask uh, in that vein. Or two, we want to pray for a local church. We want to pray for the church at River Oaks. We'll pray for Kelly and Pam Reagan, or Regan. Uh, just thankful for his ministry and their ministry in this community for so many years. And thankful for the, the part that uh, the church at River Oaks plays in our community. Uh, Lord, I pray for Kelly this morning as maybe he's possibly preaching online or as he's uh, preparing to uh, preach in a smaller setting. Lord, I pray that he is fueled by worship. I pray that you have uh, steadied him, that you've calmed him in a, uh, a a strange season where he's able to point others to the greatness that we have in Christ, the stability that we have in, in strange times in the person and work of Christ. I, I pray for his, uh, his ministry, his message, Lord. I pray for his worship. We pray for his marriage. We, we together as cross point lift up the church at river Oaks, asking you to bless them and grow them uh, for your own glory. Um, Lord also we want to continue to pray for our little brother, Trevor, and his family and our other uh, another little brother Everett uh, and his family. Lord, we pray for endurance. We pray for faith and trust as they navigate this season as well. With the rest of us having already dealt uh, with um, an unbelievably difficult season for both of them, both families uh, with health matters with little Everett and Trevor, we are lifting them up and entrusting them to you. We're praying too for the sick and the suffering. Uh, any anyone in our community that might be uh, sick and unwell and worried and fearful that they may have this virus, Lord, we uh, we pray that you would uh, just calm them, Lord, that you would draw folks in this season of maybe fear and anxiety to the peace that we have in Christ, and that we as um, followers of Christ would be ambassadors with that good news. Lord, we too want to pray for our healthcare workers who are serving in such a demanding situation right now, who probably have their own fears and concerns about bringing home something to their families, where we entrust these families to you and ask you to sustain them and give them endurance. We pray the same for our law enforcement and our fire uh, services, Lord, we, people that are having to interact, interact with everyone every day uh, because life is still moving forward. Lord, we entrust these, these folks that are still having to get out in the world um, and possibly being exposed. We entrust them to you and thankful that you are a good shepherd watching over all of us. Lord, we want to turn these few minutes over to you. Lord, I ask you to speak through this medium uh, to give me um, clarity and an attentiveness to people, um, a mindfulness of folks who are gathering in homes and dens and living rooms and um, dorm rooms even. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bring their faces and their lives and their stories to mind as we together join our Lord in the garden. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we are going to be extinguishing our fifth uh, candle. Uh, we're celebrating Lent this year, and I have a, a reading to share with you and then a written prayer from one of our Puritan brothers uh, that I'll share after the reading from uh, Psalm. I'll be reading from Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is a, uh, 
is a really sad psalm. It's a psalm that um, the nation of Israel sang when they were in Babylon. And ironically, um, they weren't able to sing um, in, in Jerusalem. They were stripped from their homes because of their sin. They were dealing with the consequences of their sin. And adding to that, there were tormentors uh, who, were, who were heckling them and goading them to sing more. Uh, it's a really, really sad song about the weight and gravity of our sin. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Join me in prayer as we share, as we consider this prayer from one of our Puritan brothers. I thank thee from the depths of my being for thy wondrous grace and love. Sorry. Let me start that over. I'm going to mute this. I thank thee from the depths of my being for thy wondrous grace and love in bearing my sin in thine own body on the tree. May thy cross be to me as the tree that sweetens my bitter maras, as the rod that blossoms with life and beauty, as the brazen serpent that calls forth the look of faith. By thy cross crucify my every sin. Use it to increase my intimacy with thyself. Make it thy ground of all my comfort, the liveliness of all my duties, the sum of all thy gospel promises, the comfort of all my afflictions, the vigor of my love and thankfulness, graces, the very essence of my religion. And by it, give me that rest without rest, the rest of ceaseless praise. Amen. We extinguish our fifth candle today. Two remaining, one for next Sunday, and then the last will be extinguished on Good Friday. If you are one to stand for the reading of God's word, this would be a time where you and your family could join me in standing or stand for me um, as we read from Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. Mark chapter 14, beginning in Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to, to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us from these words. Lord, speak to us from this window and glimpse into God the Son praying to you, Father. Lord, speak to us and show us not only a window into ourselves, but a window into the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Christ and his work. Lord, we are entrusting these few minutes to you. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get into our passage. Let me share with you a little bit about the plan for what we're going to do in these next few minutes. I want to sort of set the stage in this passage. I want to I'll give you a little bit of context. I want to introduce you to the geography and the players in the garden. I want to deal then with the mood of the garden. There's some very important things that come out of the mood here. And then I want to deal with the content of Christ's prayer. So we're just going to unearth these things, and then we're going to land on two really important, I think, wonderful truths for us that we can walk away with for us as followers of Christ uh, to consider about ourselves, and then secondly, to consider and enjoy about our Lord. First of all, let me give you a little bit of context. What's unfolding here time-wise and space-wise, this is after the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper that we considered just this last week. They left for what they might call a regular camping spot, a night, uh, a place where they often spent the evening, uh, maybe often in prayer. We don't know if that was the common place, the regular place for them to pray, but it was a garden called Gethsemane. It was on the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane actually means uh, olive press, so it made sense for, uh, for a garden like that to be on the side of this Mount of Olives. It was likely a small garden. The Mount of Olives is not that large not that big. So possibly this little garden uh, was a, a nice, quaint little place for them to gather in prayer. It was very common for folks to spend the night outside of Jerusalem during the time of Passover, because you would have to be a person of means to have a place to spend the night in Jerusalem in any night, much less during Passover. So it would, it would not have been strange for them to spend the evening in Gethsemane, possibly even before this. It looks like Jesus led them there for the purpose of prayer. Now, as for geography of the garden, we don't know how the garden was laid out. We don't know the size of it, but we are given a little, a few clues into what this garden looked like uh, or how this garden may have um, played out that evening, how the geography may have come into play. And I would kind of give you the, the thought of maybe some stations, maybe three stations in the garden. The first station would be where the first eight disciples were deposited. And those stations, or that station would include guys like Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas. Uh, it would be all the disciples minus Peter, James, and John. You're about to see them in a moment. And Judas. Judas would have departed by this point to meet up with the um, posse that would arrest him later. So that's the first station of the garden and maybe just for geography's sake kind of imagine that being the entrance to the garden maybe there's a bench there and all the eight all eight uh, disciples are parked there for this evening of prayer the second deposit takes place for three disciples or the second place in the garden is the deposit of three disciples and those are peter james and john these guys and their personalities and their stories will come into play later on in the morning. But one of the things I want you to think about these guys is these are sort of the inner three, these three men. We might even consider them to be the A-team, maybe even first string. These are the guys that were invited into the room when he raised Jairus's daughter. They're also the men that accompanied him on the mountain of transfiguration. And here they are led to the inner areas of the garden in Gethsemane to at least listen in on his prayer. It appears that he wanted them close. It appears that he wanted them praying. And I'll share the passages with you again. Uh, so they're familiar to us, verses 33 and 34. He took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. We'll come back to this. He pronounced to them, we'll come back to this pronouncement too, my soul's very sorrowful, even unto death. But he told these three men, Remain here and watch. It's really a good thing. You'll find out later that he chose the A-team and the first string to join them because join him because this is going to be their time to shine. We would hope anyway. The third station in the garden. The first is where the first eight are deposited. The next station is where these next three, Peter, James, and John, are deposited. And here is the third place in the garden. It says that Jesus went a little 
far, farther, beginning in verse 36. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. We'll get into the content of the prayer in a moment. But just for geography's sake, so we can kind of see how this thing is playing out. It's likely he just went a few steps farther beyond Peter, James, and John. Probably, likely in earshot for the content of his prayer to be recorded. It was likely in earshot. And he fell to the ground in prayer. I want you to think about that for a moment. God fell to the ground in prayer. Just let that arrest you for a minute, that God fell. I, I want to take the next few minutes and just sort of capture the mood that went along with that fall. I want to capture his mood. I want to capture his disposition. And there's some really sweet windows into both in this passage. In verse 33, it says he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That word began is a key word because it tells us there's something new going on in Christ's story now. This word begin introduces us to a new page in the story of the cross for Jesus. And it's not like this just occurred to him that he's about to die. He's predicted it a number of times beforehand in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, and in chapter 14, again, over the supper, he's predicted his death. But it's here in this garden that something new unfolds. He experiences something new as this word introduces this word began. And there's some windows into specifically some feelings that he was experiencing in the garden. You know, there's not a lot of emotion in the story of Christ. Uh, there are places where he was joyful. There's places where he's angry. We know as he cleared the temple, he was angry. He was joyful at doing the Father's will. There were times where he was hungry. Uh, there were times where he experienced these emotions, but there's not a lot of uh, insight into all the feelings that he must have felt. But there are three really important ones right here. First of all, he was distressed. This word distressed in the original language means alarm and shock. This is the word that was used for Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, when they went to the garden, to the tomb on the morning of his resurrection and said on the way, who's going to move the stone for us so we can anoint his body with um, uh, spices. And they get there and the tongue that, the, the tomb has been opened and the stone has been moved and they step in and there's an angel there. That's the shock that they felt, the distress and the alarm and the shock. So Jesus is feeling some measure of shock and alarm in this moment that drives him to his knees. Something else we know he's feeling is he's feeling troubled. The word there for troubled actually means distressed. So there's not sort of a, a new thought here. It's just a deeper measure of distress in this word, troubled. It's the word that actually is used in the book of Job that's coupled with the horror that the unbelieving and wicked world will experience when God brings, it, brings judgment. So this is extreme and profound trouble and distress. And then in verse 34, he shares a pronouncement. He gives some insight to Peter, James, and John into how he's feeling. John, Mark, the writer of the book of Mark, the book of Mark is the one that gave us these first two words, distress and trouble. But this next one comes directly from our Lord. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. This word sorrowful is the word that was used of the rich man when he rejected Christ, when he loved his stuff more than Jesus. And he was unwilling to follow Christ after selling his worldly goods. He went away sorrowful. It's also the word that was used to describe uh, Cain after Cain's uh, offering was rejected. He's, it's his state of mind actually before he killed Abel. That's a significant and profound sorrow, and the words are added, even unto death. It's an emotion that's so profound that you add unto death after it. 
anger unto death is what Jonah felt, like to the point of wanting to die. Now, we don't know that he's, there's not some sense that he's suicidal in here, in this, in this window. He's just sorrowful, almost to the point of death, deathly sorrow. So we've got three really important words that come out of this passage that give us a window into a God that falls to his knees, that he's distressed. We could add alarm and shock, that he's troubled and he's sorrowful, sorrowful, even unto death. We could summarize it and say that he is in a bad, bad way. Some other words we might add are hopeless, um, disappointed, uh, frustrated, angry, maybe. Those feelings might be coupled with this sense of distress and trouble and sorrow. There's some Greek moods that come out of this entire passage that also give us some window into this night. There's a Greek mood that, that's called the imperative mood, and it sounds like what it is. It's imperative. They're almost like commands. They're urgent words. And these urgent words that come out of this passage is when he parks the first disciples at the entrance, the eight, and he says, sit. The next word that's urgent and imperative is remain, remain and pray. The next word that's urgent is embedded within his prayer. Remove, remove this cup from me. And when he comes back to visit his 18, his first string, he commands them with an imperative, pray. And at the end of his night of prayer is the last imperative word, rise, rise. My betrayers are here. This evening was intense. This evening was agonizing. This evening, a word that is, is often used of a kind of an exciting time, but just imagine this excitement in the direction of, man, there's something crazy about to go, about to go down. This word, this evening was electric. This word this evening was ominous. Man, there's some terrible and crazy things about to unfold. And when you climb into these words, distress, troubled, sorrowful, even unto death, and this host of imperatives, you get the sense that this night was urgent. This night was sober. And the words and the tone are emphatic. And it's here that you see God on his knees. It's here that you see him on his knees praying to his father in this hour of agony. It's here you see him begging with his father or begging his father for something. It's here that you see him prostrate and on his face. The only time that I can find where he prays on his knees and his face. It's here that you get to see these new adjectives of something new, distress, alarm, shock, trouble, and sorrow, even unto death. All right, let's climb into the content of his prayer. The writer of the Gospel of Mark gives us sort of a summary in verse 35. It says that as he, he fell to the ground, he prayed, and here's the content and the summary from Mark. If it were possible that the hour might pass from him. That's Mark's summary of what he prayed. And then here's the specific words that Christ prayed in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove, remember imperative, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Man, this prayer here, I think, is the middle of the passion for us. Get the sense that it's kind of the middle of the garden. It's kind of the middle of the night. It's the middle of the passion of Christ. It's sort of the marrow of this whole story. And I would offer this too. It's the middle of the meaning of it all. The meaning of his agony and the meaning of his suffering. And it starts with this very important word, Abba. Abba. I've heard this word defined as something that we might use as daddy. I would probably, more and more I've studied this word, I would probably discourage the use of the word as daddy, but I would encourage the use of the word as the thought of an intimate 
word for your father. Like you're coming to your father out of respect and your adoration of him and an enjoyment of him and calling dear father, the sense of, of connected, intimate relationship with his father. It wasn't a word that people used in prayer. It wasn't a word that people used of their heavenly father. It was a unique word that he used. And of course he can use it being the dear son, but it reveals the closeness of the son with our father. And it defines, this is so important this morning. It defines the ordeal of the garden and the agony of the cross. It helps us understand the ordeal of the garden and the agony of the cross, this term, Abba. And his request, remember it's an imperative, remove, remove this cup, what John just in the verse before called the hour, remove this cup and this hour from me, yet not my will, but yours. You know, Jesus has taught recently on prayer. It's just a few weeks ago that we were considering the clearing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. He comes to the fig tree before he clears the temple and there's no fruit on it. He clears the temple and then he comes back out to the fig tree and it's cursed the next day or it's dead the next day after the curse. It's withered, in fact. And he gives some teaching on prayer. And I want you to listen to this passage in um, verse in chapter 11, beginning in verse 22, he's teaching his disciples on prayer. He's just spoken about the temple to be the house of prayer. So now he's directing it to the people of God. Now you're going to be the people of prayer because this house is going to be destroyed, just like this fig tree has withered. And in verse 22, he answered them saying, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. All right. I want you to just consider, first of all, all those conditions have been met in this prayer. He is praying faithfully. He's praying confidently. He's he's praying, trusting the Lord, trusting his father. It is a faithful prayer and it's a faith-filled prayer. This isn't some empty prayer from a disqualified prayer. This is the same prayer that also told the Sea of Galilee to be still. This is the same prayer that prayed at Lazarus' tomb, that Lazarus would come forth and a few moments later, Lazarus comes out of a tomb, having been dead three days. This is the same prayer, mind you, that cursed the fig tree and gave those instructions as they stood by this withered fig tree. It is not an empty prayer. And it's also not an empty prayer prayed to a God who's not able. Consider it's it's a powerful prayer from a powerful prayer to a God who's especially able. And God the Son points it out. You can do all things. All things are possible. That word is mentioned twice, one by John, or excuse me, one by John Mark, and then once by the Lord as he gives the content of his prayer. He's We might call it twice possible. What he asked was very much possible. And after all, the Father can do all things. So just consider this for a moment. It's a beautiful picture that comes out of this content of his prayer and what unfolds in these next few moments. Even the son of God can't assume that the father of whom all things are possible will always do what he wants. Even God, the son cannot assume that. This is what I want us to just draw out right before we even get to our points later, but just draw it out why he's sitting here right in front of us. That sometimes prayer is less about, far less, and I would say most times prayer is far less about you getting what you want and more about God bringing you into alignment with what he wants, bringing you into alignment with his will. So there's, I just offer this thought to you. There's probably no Christian more impotent than the Christian who doesn't pray. There's probably no church more impotent. 
than a church that, that does not pray because you're not being brought into God's will. You're not being brought into alignment with God's will for your person or your family or your church. There's probably no family that's more impotent than a family that does not pray. Consider this, the strength that Jesus finds in this prayer is not in getting what he wants, but in trusting in the Father's will, in trusting himself to the Father's will and way. Now that's the mood and the content of the prayer. Now let's go back to our stations and see how things are going. Let's just take a little glimpse back. Back at station two, where the A-team and the, the first string are parked, just a few passages that come out. And remember, these guys are in earshot of God the Son praying to God the Father in earnest, crying out, crying out, remove this cup from me. We go back to this place. We go back to that station. And what we're going to find there in the A-team, in the first string, is a bunch of sleepyheads. In verse 37, it says, He came back and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, are you asleep? Look at verse 40. Again, he came back and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And then in verse 41, their eyes were actually very heavy. And in verse 41, he came to them a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Man, I know that our Lord is not condescending, but there's something about this that just reminds me uh, when I was serving uh, in the Marine Corps, <laughs> some of the most hilarious things I've ever seen was, was when a drill instructor got in someone's face who had fallen asleep on firewatch, for example, or some duty where they'd fallen asleep and a drill instructor or a staff sergeant or gunnery sergeant or platoon sergeant gets in their face and says, you having a good nap, cupcake? There's some sense in here of embarrassment. I know our Lord is not condescending. He's not a drill, drill instructor, and I don't want to suggest that. But I do want to offer that this must have been a humiliating experience for these men as they're caught thrice sleeping. It must have been terribly embarrassing. The Lord offered some commentary on it as well. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In the book of Mark, the spirit, as the spirit is referred to in previous chapters, is sort of the sense of uh, the, the higher pursuits or higher aspirations of humanity at its best. Okay, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit, it doesn't seem at this point. We're talking about sort of your higher goals, like the strong commitments uh, that you might hear from well-meaning men. A little hint at where this is going. The strong commitments that you might hear from well-meaning men. The flesh, though, is human nature. Uh, the human nature to take the path of least resistance, the path of comfort, and the path of self-interest. I thought about one way to kind of make this uh, hit home for you. is I think it's the man, a man's spirit that sets New Year's resolutions, and it's a man's flesh that puts them to death, usually by the end of February. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we've had these three stations where the first disciples were deposited. The next three, the 18, the first string are deposited. The third, where our Lord prayed. We have the content of the prayer. We have the mood of the holy experience. And then the conclusion of the evening in verse 41b and 42. Let's look at it. This is after the third visit where he finds them sleeping. He's prayed the same prayer twice we know for sure, probably a third time. The same prayer, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. And the evening ends with, these, with this event. He says, Jesus says, it is enough. The hour has come. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This word, it is enough. It's an unclear word of how it's used elsewhere. But some, most people, that the theologians that have written on this believe that it's in that moment that he's saying, it's settled. It is enough. It's over. The cup and the hour will not be removed. 
My prayer and my request, my earnest, fervent prayer has been answered. And the answer is here and at hand. A father who was and is capable and a son who even pointed that out. Father, you are capable of all things. With the arrival of the posse and Judas basically says there's no other way. There is no other way but this. This is the only way that lost sheep can be found and gathered. This, this hour in this cup, is the only way for sinners to be saved. This hour in this cup is the only way for enemies to be made not only friends, but made family and children of the high king of heaven. There's no other way. It's possible, yes, but there's no other way. This was the only way and the only bride price for a sleepy groom. Two lessons I think that we can draw out of this. The first has to deal with the 18, the first string. And I really, I think it has to deal with all followers of Christ. Painful lessons. If you would just look with me in Mark chapter 10, I want you to look at, we're going to take a closer look at Peter, James, and John and some words that they shared with our Lord to make sense of the point that I think our Lord has made thrice, three times, and what Mark records in our gospel. In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 38, I'll begin in verse 35, actually. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? are to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. And these two confident, well-meaning men say to him, we are able. Take those words from James and John and flip over just a few pages to a commitment that's made by the third guy, Peter. In chapter 14, verse 26 and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it's written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, you know what, Lord, even though all fall away, I will not. <laughs> I'm going to be right here. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, well-meaning man, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And he wasn't alone with that commitment. They all said the same. Man, just consider those strong commitments from these three men. These are the same men that are in earshot of God the Son as he's on his face praying fervently and urgently to God the Father. And yet here they are, the ones that are being recorded as being sweepy. They're so sweepy, their eyes are so heavy. He goes off to pray fervently, falling to his face, and he comes back, and they're sleeping. He goes off to pray again, the same content, the same prayer, begging his Father that this cup would be removed, and he comes back. And they're asleep. And a third time he goes off and prays, likely the same content comes back and they are asleep, thrice sleepy. Maybe it was the full meal from the Passover. Maybe it was the three cups of wine that they had had by that point. Whatever the reason, they could not stay awake despite the imperative mood, despite the mood, despite the tone, despite the body language as Jesus falls to his face. Despite the gravity of this hour, despite their big promises and good intentions and willing spirits, indeed their flesh was weak. 
man, it's a sad and honest dealing with the truth of human weakness. We are prone to think far more highly of ourselves than we should. I want you to consider that when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus to ask, hey, can we sit on our right and sit on your left? All the other disciples got mad. So it wasn't just these two who were in it for themselves and thought they were worthy to sit on the right and the left. The others were mad because they thought they should have been in the running as well. That's the only reason you would be mad. If these guys are lobbying for something that you think you should be worthy of as well. We're prone to thinking our ideas and our insights are the most keen. We're prone to overvaluing our contribution. Did you hear the words from Peter? Even though all fall away, I will not. If I must die with you, I'll not deny you. And they all said the same. We're prone to overpromise. We're prone to overexpress our fidelity and commitment. I remember when I was a kid growing up singing a song, a hymn. I don't even remember what hymn it was, but I remember this line because I thought, yeah, that's me. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Oh, really? Sound like something that Peter would sing. Sound like something James and John would sing along with. And then here they are in the garden, thrice sleepy. This must have been humiliating for this A-team. This must have been humiliating for the inner three. And let me just tell you, I think this window into what they experienced here is a great tutor for us that humiliation is underrated. It is a terrible tutor, but such a sweet lesson. God can and will and does do wonderful things with an honest look into your frail contribution into the story of Christ. Your frail contribution to the story of Christ. This treasure of humiliation, and I'm going to call it that, this treasure of humiliation was not for the strap hangers. This wasn't for the 70 or the hundreds that followed him over the course of his ministry. This treasure was for those who were the most committed and had left everything to follow him and were on his inner and in his inner circle. It's a great window into the, the reality that he disciplines those he loves. Humiliation is a terrible tutor, but it's a sweet lesson. If you follow Christ for any period of time, which I hope is till your last days, expect that these honest looks in your frailty will come and they'll happen. And it's in these humiliating moments that you'll see the greatness of Christ. What a contrast. The sleeping disciples and the faithful Lord. The faithful Lord is where I want to turn as we continue. I want to consider Christ's painful cup. This is the marrow of the message and the marrow of the morning. And I think it's the sweet marrow of the whole passion. You know, there's no record of Jesus being a chicken. I've looked around and I don't see any window into him being anything other than brave and courageous and strong. In Mark chapter 1, he faced uh, the 40-day uh, fasting in the wilderness and the temptation from Satan. Uh, the other accounts say that he was in the wilderness with wild animals, fasting for 40 days and nights. And it says he was hungry. And he faced his temptations like a boss, staring down Satan, like just doing business like a boss. There's no sense that he was afraid. He did it without a bobble. Later in Mark, he's in a boat that is about to be capsized in chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was asleep in the stern on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? He doesn't look afraid to me. He's not a chicken. He stared down Satan. He was asleep on the bow, on the stern, it says, uh, in a uh, 
a storm that's swamping and drowning this boat. The next chapter is, is fascinating. They came to the other side of the sea after this storm to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him of the man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Other accounts tell us this man was naked. All right, this is a naked, crazy man. It says he lived among the tombs. I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going to be afraid of anybody that lives among tombs. I'm also going to tell you that I'm going to be afraid of a naked man. I'm going to run from a naked man. And I don't consider myself being fearful. This man says he's he, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This guy was crazy and naked and strong all at the same time. He would wrench the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And Jesus faces him like a boss. He's not a chicken. He deals with legion of um, demons that are indwelling this man. A few chapters later in chapter 10, another little window into our, our Lord and his um, strength. He's foretelling his death a third time in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And I think the rest of them suspected that he was going to face his death here, even if they didn't really get it. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. They're amazed. He's going to Jerusalem. And those who followed him were afraid. And, and, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and kill him and after three days he will arise he doesn't look afraid to me he doesn't sound afraid to me he is undaunted unworried that i don't see any of the things that i'm seeing in the garden right here he is bold and courageous as he clears the temple the next chapter he's not afraid of anything he will face he will face the arrest and the trials also in chapters 14 and 15 with calmness and courage. But it's here in the garden that he rages. It's here in the garden on this night that he's distressed, and shocked, and alarmed. It's here in the garden that he's troubled. It's here in the garden that he's sorrowful, even unto death. The dreadful sorrow and shock and distress is not out of fear for his well-being. It's not out of fear or a moment of weakness considering the physical suffering and death that he's going to endure. This is the marrow of the agony right here. This is the meat of it. It's rather about the horror of one who lives holy for Abba who lives wholly for his father, knowing that obedience would mean alienation and separation from him. That was the agony. That's the agony that he's facing. That's the agony of the cross. This is the agony about separation from his father. That's the heart of the suffering. That's what that new thing that began in this garden and even in these prayers he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3. So this is a moment where Jesus knows and he realizes obedience and submission to my father will mean this. That my father who said my son, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, will say in a terrible moment, in a terrible hour, this is my son who was made sin and was cursed. This is my son that I'm now turning my back on. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It says in Isaiah chapter 53 verse, two, verse 10. So in place of this is my son with whom I in whom I'm well pleased came this. This is my pierced son. This is my 
punished son. This is my crucified son, my cursed, my crushed son. Crushed for the sins of sleepyheads. Man, that was the agony of the hour. And the agony came to its climax on the cross when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the hour of alienation. He and separation. He drank the cup that he spoke of as the last at the last supper. He drank the cup that we might even call it a mug. No small cup of redemption in full. And it was a terrible cup of separation from Abba, Father. This is the sweetness of this message right here. This thought in this agony, in this hour, in the content of his prayer and his resolve and how he moved on from there, his confidence and his, his uh, courage leading up to that moment, the things that we see in these windows into his heart. And this evening, he shows us what's most valued and most treasured. And there are times where we see from our Lord that he's, he's sorrowful, he's sad, at the death of Lazarus, and he weeps for Lazarus. We see moments where he's hungry because he, he needs some food and he's tired from travel. We see him feeling very real things that are all valuable, that have meaning. We want to take care of ourselves. We want to feed ourselves when we're hungry. We want to weep with those who weep when, when we've lost someone who's close and dear to us. But the, the, the thing that actually prompts distress, the thing that actually prompts sorrow even unto death, the thing that prompts trouble for him is the notion of being separated from Abba because that's his treasure. That is our treasure, people of God. All those other things have value, but Christ's highest treasure was calling God Abba and being in constant communion and fellowship with him. So here's the good news for sleepyheads. The good news for sleepyheads is that Jesus experienced, God the Son experienced the separation from the Father in this terrible hour, in this terrible cup, so that we won't have to. Ever. We too can call him Abba, Father. His work was so profound on the cross. We're not just spared of punishment, but we're actually brought into an intimate relationship with God the Father through the work of the Son so that we too can join him, calling him Abba, Father. How full our salvation, how complete our salvation, not only spared from death, but made family with full rights and privileges. It is scandalously good. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this wonderful window into this terrible night. We're thankful for the distress, the trouble, the sorrow even unto death. We're thankful into this window of what our Lord cherished most. And Lord, we are thankful that we have that in Christ and through Christ in spades, that we can approach your throne boldly, calling you Abba, Father. Lord, we marvel at that in this moment. We are thankful for that in this moment. And we, a bunch of sleepyheads on our best day, acknowledge that Christ is our righteousness. He is the only means by which we approach you boldly. We enjoy him together in Christ's precious name. Amen. I'll give you a moment to gather your, your elements for supper. Uh, just share a thought with you in a passage. If you have bread and cup handy, we I thought we might take those together, even though we're not together. We can take them together at least in, in time if we're not together in space, knowing that our Lord binds us together as a people taking a shared meal. And I want you to consider this thought as you gather your elements for the supper. As rebellion in the garden brought death to the world, submission and obedience in the garden of Gethsemane 
ushered life into the world. What the new Adam accomplished and the old one could not, the new Adam accomplished in spades. Let's gather our bread in our cup. And I'll be reading from Mark chapter 14 from last week. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Take and eat in faith. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Take and drink in faith. Thank you so much for joining this morning. Let me just share a couple of announcements and then I'll close this with a benediction. First of all, if you know of a need or if you have a need, Please share that with us as a church that we have a chance to come alongside those who are in our body and even in our community. They may not be part of us. It's a great opportunity for us to love our neighbor, to be salty, bright and aromatic. If you have a need that you are aware of or that, that, has, or that you become aware of, uh, two uh, places to reach out. You can reach out to my website or excuse me, my email address, Ben at CrosspointFellowship.us. Another email address you can use is office at CrosspointFellowship.us. That will, go, that will go to Aaron Adele, and she, between Aaron and myself, we can figure out how to distribute those needs and how to connect those, those needs to our, our church family who may be able to help. Uh, I want to encourage you also to connect with our website, uh, crosspointfellowship.us, our social media pages. Uh, we have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. I want you to encourage you to work at being connected, to use all the mediums and all the virtual uh, things that we have at our fingertips and learn those things if you need to learn them to connect. And that brings me to the last announcement. Uh, our uh, adult uh, Bible study teachers are as much as possible in these coming weeks going to offer evening Bible studies on Sunday nights. I know a lot of our life groups are meeting right now through Zoom or Hangouts or Meets or something like that. Um, and that's usually in late afternoon, or early evening. But if you would like to be part of an adult Bible study, at 8.30 tonight, and 8.30 is on purpose. You could possibly have the kids down in bed or occupied for the evening for a 30-minute Bible study with Bill Ruth. I'll send out an email this afternoon uh, that you can connect to um, that meeting. It'll be a Zoom meeting, so it'll be a link and then also a meeting ID that you'll need to get plugged into the meeting. So I'll send that out this afternoon. So if you'd like to participate in that, just be looking for that email. I'll share our uh, benediction from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 38 and ending in verse 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate from separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful week and God bless you.